We have the opportunity also this morning to continue our study and our track through the book of Philippians. So I want to ask you right now to open up uh, your Bible. If you do not have one with you, there should be a, a blue Bible on the row somewhere next to you. But I want to ask you to open up to Philippians chapter 2. I'm going to be reading verses 12 and 13. And as you're able, I want to ask you to stand, please, out of reverence for God's Word. Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Please be seated. I really like to read the small little devotional book, The Our Daily Bread. I don't know if you're familiar with that. It's a small little booklet type. It's just one page for each day. You can read it in the morning or in the evening. But The Our Daily Bread has a lot of little stories in it that go with maybe a verse or two uh, of Scripture. And not too long ago, there was a great little story in there. And The Daily Bread was talking about a young teenage boy. And like most young teenage boys, this particular one got into a lot of trouble. And this teenage boy, when he would be confronted by his parents, he would always say he was sorry. He would always apologize. And his parents, like any good parents, would forgive their son of what he had done. But then the son would go on and do something else wrong. He would go and and disobey again. Well, finally, one day, the dad figured that he had had quite enough of this, so the dad decided he was going to take his son to the garage for a little talk. So dad tells his boy to come with him. They, they walk into the garage. Dad picks up a hammer. He grabs a nail with his son standing there, and he goes up to the wall in the garage, and he just, and he pounds in a nail into the wall. He turns to his son, and he just hands him the hammer. He says, son, he said, I want you to take that hammer, and I want you to pull that nail out of the wall. And the boy sort of Shrugged it off, I'm sure, thinking Dad thinks he put that nail in pretty good. Doesn't think I can get that out of the wall very easily. So the boy walks over there, puts the hammer up to it, and he yanks it out in one big, one big swoop, one big grab. And his dad looks at him and he says, son, he said, that's like forgiveness. So when you do something wrong, it's like pounding in a nail. He said, forgiveness is when you take the nail out. Of course, the son says, okay, okay, Dad. He said, I get it. I get it, Dad. I understand. See, the boy didn't realize the dad wasn't finished. He wasn't finished with his little talk with the boy. So the the dad says, son, you still have the hammer in your hand. Son said, yeah, dad. So now I want you to take the hammer. He said, I want you to take the hole out of the wall that that nail made. So the says, I can't do that. That's impossible. Now the boy was right. He couldn't use that hammer and take the hole out of the wall. But what this story illustrates for us this morning is that our sin carries with it consequences, that much like a nail going into a wall, that our sin carries with it consequences and leaves behind a hole in the wall after it's been there. And at the bottom of that little devotion that morning, at the bottom of the page, it said this. I want to read this to you. It said, the best way to avoid the damage of sin is to live a life in obedience to God. 
that the best way to avoid the damage of sin is to live a life in obedience to God. Now, this morning, we're going to be looking at a few different ideas. Now, if you're one of those that likes to jot things down or take notes or reference other parts of scriptures for later in the day or next week, in the back of your bulletin, on the very last page, there's a, it's a small little, I guess I'll call it an outline, if you'd like to follow that. And it might be helpful, as we're going through this today, it may be helpful to jot down, just have in the back of your minds, put faith against effort and trust against obedience. We're going to be thinking about faith versus effort and trust versus obedience. Now, we're going to be clumping all of this together. We're going to be looking at this all as a whole, that faith versus effort and trust versus obedience. So this morning, we're basically going to be asking the question, what does it mean to grow in Christ? That's our main idea. The question we want to answer today is, what does it mean to grow in Christ? I have a role, and God has a role. So this morning, we've read in the text that we are to work out our own salvation. What does that mean? How practical is it for us this morning to think about having to work out our own salvation? If the best way to avoid the damage of sin in my life is to live a life in obedience, well, what does that mean for me when I disobey? Where does that leave me when I disobey God? Now, if you've been coming across Creek fairly regularly, you're probably getting used to hearing about God's grace. You're getting used to hearing about God's mercy. We say a lot that salvation is by faith alone, that there's nothing that we can add to our salvation. We say it's completely and utterly and wholly a gift of God. So what in the world does it mean to me when I come to Philippians 2 and it tells me that I've got to work out my own salvation? And then it goes on to tell me I've got to do it with fear and trembling. Am I supposed to be frightened in front of God? Am I supposed to have my knees shaking because of what I've done in my life? When I come and I think about being in front of God, I've got to work out my salvation with fear and trembling. Okay, so I've got to work out my salvation. Now, does this passage this morning, does it follow suit with so many other belief systems and so many other religions? throughout the world, here in Birmingham, throughout the state of Alabama, across our country, and throughout the world, there are so many other belief systems, there are so many other religions, and they teach that you and I need to be doing certain things in order for God to be pleased with us. And not only are there things that we can be doing, there are things that we should be doing on certain days on the calendar. And then if there's a certain day and we do a certain thing and we do it just right, that God will actually give us extra credit. Is that what Philippians 2 is talking about when it tells us to work out our salvation? Because these other belief systems, what they tell us is that when we stand before God in His judgment, that God's going to take all the good things that I've done, He's going to take all these good deeds that I've done, He's going to take all my bad ones, and He's going to put them on His great big scale with me standing there. And God's going to weigh them. And I'm going to stand there and I'm going to watch them teeter-totter back and forth. Here's my good deeds. And boy, I am hoping that I have done enough. And in the end, if my good deeds, if they outweigh my bad deeds, then in the end, I get to go to heaven, right? 
people know. These other belief systems actually teach that in the end, even if I've done everything possible within my own being to do things pleasing to God, and my good deeds actually did outweigh my bad deeds, that God could still send me to hell because it's His choice. Now, my question for somebody under that belief system is, what kind of assurance could you and I have if that's the way we felt about our relationship with God? That would sure enough be working out my salvation with fear and with trembling. But what I want us to see this morning from Philippians 2 is that our salvation is God's salvation. Our salvation is God's salvation. So back to the main point this morning. What does it mean to grow in Christ? Oftentimes when I talk with people about growing in Christ, usually the focus is on sinning less. Usually the focus that when I think about living a life in obedience to God, or I think about being more like Christ, usually the focus in that conversation is about that I've got to, I've got to be with less sin. I can't sin as much in order to be like Christ. Well, correct. In order to be like Christ, we have to be perfect without sin. But I think we need to take the focus off of doing away with our sin, thinking about that sin over and over and over so much that that's what occupies our time, and think about filling ourselves with the righteousness of Christ in such a way that that sin doesn't stand a chance. That's what I want us to think about this morning. Not, not so much that I've got to focus on that sin so that I don't do that sin, but filling ourselves up with the knowledge and with the righteousness of Christ in such a way that that sin doesn't stand a chance. Now, we're really talking about here, for those of you who like those big words, here's one of those big words for you. It's our sanctification. We're really talking about being sanctified this morning. Now, all we mean by being sanctified is that we are made to be more holy, that when we are sanctified, we are made to be more like Christ. But sanctification speaks about the process of our being made more like Christ. I really like this term. It, it makes the wording a little bit longer. But progressive sanctification. Progressive sanctification. I want to think about my Christianity as something that has happened. So that's how I want to view my Christianity. I want to view my conversion as something that happened in the past. It's already happened. And when that happened, all of a sudden I'm in Christ and I act exactly how I should. I say all the things that I should say and all that jazz. And everything's just fine because now I'm converted. Now I'm a Christian, right? I want to think about this as a process that we over and over are being made to be more like Christ. I was thinking about a way to think about, you know, how, why I focus on sin in my life so much. When I think about being more like Christ, why is the focus on my sin and not on the righteousness of of Christ. In one way, it's a pretty broad stroke, but I was reminded of the, in the Old Testament, the Old Testament sacrificial system. When they had to keep coming over and over, continually, they would have to come before God and they would sacrifice animals. 
They had to come and they had to spill blood before God in hopes that he would accept that so that they would have propitiation from their sins, so they would have forgiveness because something had to happen. Somebody had to pay for that sin with their death. What, what do you think God was doing in and through all that and making them come back over and over and over? Well, think about it this way. If you and I had to keep coming in here on Sunday mornings and taking a knife and slitting the throat of animals so that blood was spilled out so that we got an idea of how seriously God takes our sin, I don't think you and I would quite have the theological amnesia that we do. Now, by theological amnesia, I mean we forget about God. We had to come in here every week and we had to kill something because that's how seriously God takes our sin. I think we think about it next week. That God takes it so seriously that somebody has to pay that debt. But we forget about that and that we're separated from God because of our sin. Now look back at verse 12 again with me. Verse 12 of our passage, he says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. You may have heard somebody before say, whenever there's a therefore, you need to ask what the therefore is there for. So this morning, we're going to ask, what's the therefore, therefore? And we need to note that Paul has actually used this word twice here very quickly. Look up at verse 9 with me. He says, therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. What he's talking about here, this therefore means because this happened. That's what he's saying in verse 9. Because this happened that I spoke about before, which Chris preached to us last week. Chris preached saying that Jesus Christ humbled himself. He humbled himself through his obedience and went and paid for it with his death. And through his death, and it says, yes, death even on a cross. Since he did this, therefore God exalted him. Jesus shows us what humility looks like and how it is put to action through obedience. Therefore, verse 12. Now, if we're not careful, though, and we neglect the context in which we're in, here in verse 12, we might tend to think that Scripture is supporting some sort of self-help salvation. If we don't realize the context that we're in, we see this as some kind of self-help salvation. Now, this would be the mentality that God requires 100% righteousness. He requires 100% righteousness but he understands that you and I are probably not going to reach that, so he's probably content with, well, y'all want to have a vote this morning, we could say maybe 60% righteousness. There's some of you maybe sitting out there thinking, I could probably shoot for 70 or 75% righteousness. God requires 100%, knows I won't attain it. But, you know, some self-help salvation here, as long as I do enough and I try and I really motivate myself and I get up for it, so we would end up seeing this verse in that way and mean that we could earn our salvation or we could work towards it. But that is not what verse 12 is teaching. Rather, it teaches us and it reminds us that since we are already saved, 
or because Christ has already done these things and entered into our lives, you have His power, you have His work in you and can now press on to show God's salvation in your life and in your own conduct. Now you might be asking yourself, how I know that? That may sound right to you. That may sound good and you may agree with that theologically and, and think that's, that's what the Bible would teach, that I can't earn my salvation. But I, how do we take that from a verse like verse 12 that tells us we are to work out our salvation with fear and trembling? Well, notice the verse doesn't say to work for your salvation. Verse 12 doesn't say to work toward your salvation. It says to work out your salvation. Now, if you are a believer in Christ this morning, you've been freed from a life of captivity that is brought on by your sin. And you're now free. And you're free to live as it has been prescribed for you in God's Word. But it's not the idea that we can now live unrestricted lives. Now that we've been set free by Christ, that we can now live any way that we want to. But rather, Scripture tells us we've been free so that we can live for Christ. So verse 12 tells us that we are to work out our salvation. And that it is from God. But I want us to, want us to notice something very important here as we go from verse 12 into verse 13. It says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. John McKay, who if you recognize that name, John McKay is the former, used to be the University of Southern Cal and Tampa Bay Buccaneers head football coach. John McKay was telling a story one time and he was illustrating the confidence that Bear Bryant had. And he said that he and the bear went duck hunting together. He said, we were out there in the duck line for a good three hours. He said, we're sitting there, we haven't seen or heard the first duck. That all of a sudden, out in the distance, we see one lonely duck. He said, this duck comes flying right at us, just making a line straight for the duck line. And it's flying low. It's going to be within range in just a moment. He said, all of a sudden, I look over, and the bear, he throws up, and the bear fires. He said, that duck is still flying today. And he said, he noticed something, though. He said that Bear Bryant just stood there, and he watched that duck just fly away. And after it completely went out of sight, he turned to John and he said, John, he said, you are witnessing a genuine miracle here today. He said, that there flies a dead duck. Now, that illustrates the confidence that Bear Bryant had in himself. But we have so much confidence in ourselves, and we don't see it as our greatest liability in our relationship with the Lord. The confidence that we have in ourselves can be our greatest liability in the relationship that we have with our God. We are not to have confidence in our own efforts or in our own obedience, but rather we are to have faith and we are to trust that God and His Son has already applied to us His perfect obedience. 
You know, when we say that we are to work out our salvation, we're actually saying that we are to carry it or bring our salvation to its conclusion, and we are to apply it to our daily lives. So think of bringing your salvation to its conclusion and applying it out into your daily lives. That now, because of Christ, we have love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Do you have love, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control? Do you have that this morning? Do you have Christ in your life every day? Do you have Christ as much at the kitchen sink washing dishes as you do on Sunday mornings in this building? Do you have Christ as much with you at work on Tuesday morning as you do on Sunday mornings worshiping Him through song in church? Verse 13 tells us that God is actually the one that does the working. But I love this. Here's what I love about this verse. It doesn't just say that God does it, and we're supposed to go, okay, I get it, God does it. He tells us how He does it. Did you notice? Did you notice in this verse that He tells us how He does it? Here's the point in verse 13. Willing comes before doing. Willing comes before doing. That first, by working with our will, and He works out, or He acts out His good pleasure, His good purpose in our lives. James Boyce said about this willing coming before doing, he said, we will never understand God's working to form a person's will until we realize that apart from the work of God in his or her heart, through Jesus Christ, a person does not have free will where spiritual realities are concerned. And he said oftentimes when he would tell someone anything like that, they would say, are you, are you trying to tell me that I don't have free will to do anything that I choose? I can't do anything for myself? And he said, I usually look at him and I say, that's exactly what I'm telling you. Now, you and I can decide whether or not we're going to go to work tomorrow morning. You can decide whether or not you're going to go into work tomorrow morning. When you leave here and go to lunch today, you can decide if you're going to have soup or if you're going to have salad. Some of you may decide to have soup and salad. You can decide that. But you can't decide all of a sudden next week that you're going to run the 40 in four and a half seconds. You can't decide that all of a sudden you're going to have an understanding of quantum physics or have a million dollars next week. So would you agree with me that when it comes to things physically or intellectually, that we really don't have our free will to choose all those things that we want to do? According to these short little illustrations, I think you would agree with me. Well, I want to tell you this morning, it is no different for you spiritually because you cannot choose God. Some of us are angry. Some of us are anxious. Some of us are confused about what we believe. But none of us, no matter what, none of us can choose God and come to Him unless He decides to work in you. Now I want to look at Ephesians chapter 2. In my Bible, I actually just flip back literally two pages. Flip back 
to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians 2, I'm going to start reading in verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, but God rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. For by grace you have been saved and raised us up with him, And seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ. For by grace you have been saved through faith, faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that you and I could brag about it. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good things which he prepared in advance for us to do. Now God has made us alive. We were dead. The idea is that we were dead. We were motionless. Nonetheless could we come to God. But if you believe in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, you're no longer dead. But you are alive. But the question we're asking this morning is, what am I alive to do? We know that we're free now. We want to know what we are free to do. You are free to work out your salvation with fear and with trembling. And even better, or maybe I should say more appropriately displaying my point this morning, translation of verses 12 and 13 would go like this. That we are to work out, we are to produce this salvation Because it is God who does the work in you both to desire and to be effective for his good pleasure. Again, if you're sitting here this morning and you're wondering what the Christian life is about, I'm here to tell you it's not about being saved by one mighty stroke. Then all of a sudden everything's fine. And all of a sudden I do what I'm supposed to do. I say what I'm supposed to say. It's not about being saved just by one mighty stroke. We can't sit idly by and wait on God to perform some miracle in our life and all of a sudden it's it's just how it should be because we take a very active part. But putting forth this effort is not easy. Scripture tells us over and over that it is a battle, that it is a struggle. So if you are struggling this morning with that, find comfort that God is saying, I know it's a struggle. One commentator that I was reading said this. said, it is one thing to shout, do all to the glory of God. But it's quite another thing to carry this out in practice. It's one thing to pray as we have forgiven our debtors, but it's not so easy really to forgive. It's one thing to display a doormat that says that Christ is the head of your home, but it's something else, again, actually to recognize him as head by submitting every important question to him in prayer, and obeying his command. Now those are pretty good. Then we get to this last one and said, 
It's one thing to assert that God's sovereignty is the ultimate principle for your faith and your practice. But it's far more difficult to submit trustfully to his sovereignty when a dear loved one is growing gradually weaker and finally dies. Now we could go on and on with those little illustrations there, but I think you see my point this morning that if we are left to ourselves to fulfill what is required of us by God, that we will always fall short, that we can't do it. So verse 13 comes in, and we get to wipe our brow a little bit. Get to verse 13 after hearing that we've got to work out our salvation. We get to 13 and we say, Woo, for it's God who works in me. That's what we get to wipe our brow here. Paul says that you must continue to work out your own salvation. He says, because you can do it. That's our motivation. He's saying, work it out because you can. Because God is the one that we are relying on to be successful. Me and Margaret likes to do all of our ironing. Maybe I shouldn't say that my wife likes to do all of our ironing. She does all of our ironing at home. She does all of mine, does all of the children's ironing. But she could stand there all day long and try to turn the iron on. But if she doesn't have it plugged into the socket, it's not going to get hot. We're not going to have light in the room if those wires inside that light bulb are not connected, just as they should be, and they are connected to a source of electricity. Turn to John chapter 15 with me. Turn back to John 15. John 15, I'm going to read verses 4 and 5. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. A light bulb can do nothing without electricity. You and I can do absolutely nothing without Christ in our life. We already know from Philippians 1, verse 6, that God has begun a good work in us and that He will bring it to completion. Ephesians 2 tells us that we are His workmanship, that we are His creation. He has made us. Philippians 1.19 told us that God is the effective worker and operator in the Philippians' lives and He is the effective operator in our lives too. I mentioned earlier that we're not to think about our growing in Christ as just removing sin from our lives, but rather we've got to put something in its place. But God is never satisfied with anything that we can offer Him, yet He is satisfied and very, very pleased with the good that is done by those with the power of Christ within them. Don't try to remove that sin in your life and fight it on your own efforts, through your own obedience. Have faith and trust in God and fill yourself with the righteousness that is offered to you in the gospel. Push that sin out to where, just choke it. Fill yourself with Christ so much that that sin doesn't stand a chance where it can't even breathe. In the power of Jesus, we act according to to God's good pleasure, according to His good purpose. And in Him, we're told that we have all things, 
We have all things and we are able to work out the salvation that He has given us. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we are thankful for Your Word this morning. For Lord, how many times, Lord, have we thought about the many ways in which we try to be good enough. We try to do the right thing and yet we continually over and over fall short of Your glory. Lord, Your message for us this morning is that we will always fall short if left to our own efforts. But You have told us that through Your Son we have the ability to press on in this life and carry Your salvation to its final conclusion. Lord, we are to rest in You in your efforts, in your obedience, not in our own. Because, God, if we do, we will just wear ourselves flat out. Lord, we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.